All right, good morning. Welcome. If it's your first time, welcome. If you need announcements, they're on the back TV or the app. Get the app or go check the back TV. We are going to start something a little bit special today. I'm going to do, we are going to do, because there's going to be a few different people, I think, at this time. We're going to go, we're going to go through a series in James. We're going to go through and do, it says a something part series because Jess asked me how many weeks it was and I couldn't give a definitive answer. Because <laughs> I wrote way too much on James 1.1, 1, 1, so I don't know how long we're going to be here. We could be here for the foreseeable future. We could be here for a short time. I don't know. So it's a something-ish part series. There's so many parts. I'll tell you at the end. But before we start that, I just wanted to tackle something that I think is helpful for us to know. And if you know it, fantastic. And if you don't, then it'll be a little bit of, a, of an exciting um, understanding tool. But I just wanted to, to explain quickly the different types of styles of, of preaching and teaching that come across from a, a pulpit or for us a barrel or whatever it is, a lectern that someone preaches from. Because something that tends to happen is people, you will ask somebody about, hey, how was your time? Or, um, you know, how was, how was church? Or how was your time gathering? Or how was the sermon? And often we go, well, it wasn't great because I don't like that style or because it was really boring or because he took way too long in James 1.1 and I just wanted to get on with it. And I want to explain this because it's helpful for us to understand the different gifts that flow and the different styles that people use. Hopefully throughout this series, I'm going to have a few different people come and bring certain elements, but their, their style is going to change and their gift mix is going to be different to mine. And the reason that it's important is that God, for the last sort of eight to nine months, God has told me, or I felt that God has, has told me to preach. That's why I've been the only person preaching over the last little while. It's been very challenging, but encouraging for me. I've had to learn quickly and and think differently than I normally would. I like to mix the preaching up because you guys get a different view of gifts and a different view of understandings. But for this season, God has asked me to stand and to explain what he's showing me. So I want to thank you for that. But I feel like that's starting to ease. And I'm hoping that in the next sort of end of 2020 and, and definitely into 2021, we're going to start seeing more people coming out of the barrel. And I just want to explain that there's three different types coming out of the barrel. That's hilarious. Pun, pun intended. There are three different types of, of, of uh, styles when it comes to preaching and teaching. One is a topical, the other is a, is a textual, and, and the third one, which I think are the three primaries, is an expository. So the first one, a topical, is where someone will take a topic and then they will use the scriptures to explain that topic. So, for example, if I'm preaching on love, then I'll say, hey, this is what we're going to be preaching on this morning, and I'll bounce all over the place, or the preacher will bounce all over the place with the scriptures to explain that topic. The other one is the textual, where they will take one text, and they'll stay in that one chunky text and bring out what that text is teaching us. The last one, which is what we're going to start this morning, is expository, where we go from, from or expository, one, one uh, book or letter in the Bible, and we go all the way through to the end of the book. That's what we're going to um, attempt to start this morning. I've done this a couple of times and not got to the end of the book because <laughs> God's letter somewhere else. Maybe I got it wrong or maybe we just got to the end. But all these, uh, some will say one is the most important. Others will say this one's the most important. For me, it's they're all helpful. 
They all help us get a place. They all help us understand God more, understand the scriptures more. So as more people start coming to the barrel, I want you to give them the grace of the gift of who they are and the gifts that they carry. They will be different to mine, different to others you've heard in the past. Is that okay? Does everyone understand? Does anyone need any more clarity? Fantastic. Series on James. Go to James for me, James 1. We're going to stay there pretty much the whole time, aside from a few jumps so that we can understand what's going on. So before we start James, if you've read through James, you will understand James is a very unusual book because he makes comments or statements that are quite small in numbers of words but are quite massive in the way we live out our life. It's kind of like a whole book of one-liners. Like if James was here in today's world, he would have an awesome Instagram page that would have heaps of like hashtag one-liner where like a cool photo of the ocean and then like his point. He really uses little words to pack massive punch. So what I want to be able to do is we're going to read a smidge and then we're going to break down and break open that smidge that he's, he's sort of in packing, sorry, packing into us. This is coming off the back of my sermon last week. If you weren't here last week, please go and listen to that. It's going to be helpful to understand why we're here and where we're going. That God, I feel like God is rebuilding, especially just in what, in, just into our house, rebuilding an understanding of who we are, how we live in His goodness and His glory, what sin is, what that looks like in our life. So James, he, in a way, a lot of people who do series on James will say that this is a faith in action or Christianity in action. James is very big on ensuring that we don't just sit here, take a lot of information in, put it in our bank, and then we get to heaven and God goes, well, what did you do? Well, I learned all this stuff. Okay, well, what did you do with it? Well, I learned it all, so I know it well. That's not what God's asking us to do. He's asking us to step out, to go out into the world. So this ground that we're in, as we gather and worship and glorify Him, as we train and equip ourselves, it's to go out into the world and operate change out there. If you can do, if you can get a little bit of the Scriptures, you can do a big bit of change in your sphere of influence. A little bit of the Scriptures, big bit of change can happen. A little bit of God, big bit of change. That's what James is, is writing about. So we'll start off in, in James 1. James 1, 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. He's just going to leave the verse up there when she puts the verse up there. We're it's all right. Just pump the brakes. It's okay. Technical difficulties happen. If you're reading the Passion, it won't say James. It'll say Jacob because the Passion is translating from the Hebrew and his Hebrew name is Jacob. So they, the Passion changes it to Jacob. But all the other versions will say James because that's his Greek name. So we're just going to refer to him as James. But as we see, James in, in Matthew 13.55, James is the half-brother or the brother of Jesus. So he was with Jesus throughout his entire life. He grew up with Jesus. He grew up understanding who Jesus was. And I have four older brothers. I, I would imagine it would have been an interesting growing up time. I'm sure there was still wrestling and, and mum, he did something wrong or mum. But he grew up in the household with Jesus. But the interesting thing, the interesting thing for Jesus, uh, for, for, for James, at growing up with, with Jesus is that in John 7, 5, it says that for not even his brothers believed him. That when Jesus started to step into his calling, step into 
operating, when he was finally starting to, to operate as the Messiah, not even his brothers believed who he was. I completely understand that with four older brothers. There's no way in the world I would have been able to be like, yep, he's the guy. He's the guy that's going to bring us all in. I can understand where his wrestle was, that he, he was in a place where he's going, I don't know, but he still would have been a Jew. He still would have been following the Jewish principles. He would have learned the Torah. He would have understood the early um, uh, teachings of a Jew. He would have understood Yahweh and the teachings, but he doesn't believe at this point that we see while Jesus is operating in his ministry. He doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But then all of a sudden there's this change in James and then we get the book of James. We get this passionate, incredible man writing to a church to say, you have to believe this Messiah, you have to operate. And we see in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7 that the Lord appeared to James. The Lord Jesus appears back to James, his brother, to say, I am who I said I was. So there's this incredible challenge that we see this man growing up with Jesus, has no idea who Jesus is, actually doesn't believe in the power and authority that he carries, and then all of a sudden he gets a relational visitation from Christ and he understands who he is. He understands the call. He understands the mission. He understands what it is he's supposed to go and achieve. And I believe there that God would have downloaded something to him. He would have given him something we don't see um, Paul doesn't explain what that visitation looked like other than he went. It just says he went to James. But you see, the thing for us as Christians, for us to understand what it is James is writing, we have to have a relationship with Jesus. We have to get past the airy fairy Jesus up in the sky and actually understand him as a person in and through our lives. But when we begin to understand, when we begin to understand who he is, then doing what he asks us to do is much easier and is much more um, possible for us. That's why it says that the, the two most commandments that Jesus gives us is to love up, know him, and then love out. Because it's from his understanding that we're able to go out. Now, that doesn't mean we have to not love anybody until we get the loving up part right. But you love up first, you understand who God is. And then when you go to love out, when you go to love the people, it's easier to do so. James writes this understanding back to the church he was leading through a relationship with Christ that was given to him. That's so key for us to understand. Because when James comes in, he was the brother of Christ and he was the leader of the church in the whole of Jerusalem. He was an important man. But, but when he writes this letter, he opens it by saying, James, a servant of Christ. He had this humility, this humble position to say, I know who I am in the big scheme of things. I'm a servant of the Lord. A man who didn't believe in Christ then gets a revelation, gets a relationship with him. All of a sudden, he puts himself in the position of a servant. When you and I operate anywhere, whether it's in a house, whether it's in our workplace, we operate as servants of Christ. That's the position James writes from. Lord, I want to serve you however you want me to serve. He already, he, he starts the letter with a position to say, I'm going to do whatever God asks me to do. Before this study on, on James that I've been doing, I've felt like this book has been a hurtful, challenging book almost like a book you want to quickly flip through before you get to the next book. But this time I've been on this incredible journey where this is in encouraging. 
James is writing with, with an encouraging tone in his hand. He's writing with this thing to say, get up, people. We've got something incredibly important in front of us. We get to come as incredibly important servants of the Messiah whom I didn't know, but now I know my life has been changed. Wake up. Come on. Let's go. That's the way I read James now. So when I see the things that I flip through, you start going, man, he's actually encouraging the people. He's coming from a place of lowliness. He's coming from a place of servant. I too am a servant and I'm writing to you. Come and take what it is God is doing. Through our relationship and a humble heart, we serve God from that place. A relationship with him and humility in our heart. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The 12 tribes in the dispersion. This blows me away because... I was asking God, what is the dispersion? I was reading through a number of different um, commentaries and a few people reveal something here and there. And it was actually Francis Chan who, who I was reading and he explains what, who the dispersion is. And I nearly fell off my chair because if you go quickly to Acts, flip over to Acts 8. And God is so good because we... We have been through Acts, we've been through this verse, we explained what this verse was. Now coming through into James, we get to actually look at what was taking place. We know what's happened. Jesus died, he's been resurrected, he's ascended. Now the disciples have gone out in Acts and they're starting to further the kingdom. They're starting to preach Jesus to both Jew and Gentile. They're starting to reveal the king. But in Acts 8, 1 verse 3, it says, after um, Stephen had been preaching, and, and Saul approves of Stephen being killed. It says, and, though, and, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. James was probably one of those devout men. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul was in Jerusalem after Jesus had, had resurrected, had gone. The Holy Spirit had fallen. The disciples were in pressing out the church. Uh, Saul was now in killing Christians and ripping them out of their homes. The church was forced to scatter. They had to go online and film their services and then send them out into all the other homes. They were scattered throughout the nation. That was the dispersion. Dispersion means the action or process of distributing things or people over a wide area. There was absolute fear and terror in Judea, sorry, in Jerusalem while they were operating, and all of a sudden James pens this letter. When I was reading that, I was like, man, that's where the church is right now dispersed across the nations, dispersed back into homes, dispersed into weird different thinkings, dispersed into, I don't even know if this is important. I don't even know Jesus if this is what we're supposed to do. All this pain, all this suffering, all this fear and this heartache of, are we going to get ripped out of our homes? Is it worth it? And then James writes this letter. So in a way, I was able to replace that from the church in Jerusalem and put the church on the Gold Coast because I felt then as I was sitting there like James was writing to me, like James is writing to us, a people dispersed, displaced, disorientated, a people lost and confused, being ran out of our homes, people like my friends in India being persecuted, 
being killed, being beaten, all these things, the church in absolute lost and ruins, us on our knees, Jesus, where are you? God, where are your people? Where's the rise up? And James sits down to pen a letter in James 1, verse 2. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There is no way on earth if someone sat across from me and told me of the perils of their life, everyone was dying and it was hurting and everything was awful, that I could sit there and just look at them and say, count it joy, my brother. Be on your way. Count it joy. Because our understanding of joy is warped. We don't quite know what he's meaning when he says, I have count it, sorry, count it as joy, my brother. We don't quite understand what it means because joy is not the same as happiness. Biblical joy is not the same as, ooh, like I felt good this morning when I walked in. That's not the same as joy. The author of the, the, the Bible project, Tim Mackey, he puts joy as this. Biblical joy is not determined by your current struggles, but by your future destiny. Joy is simply this. I'm not in a good place, but there's a hope that I'm going to be in a good place. I'm not in a good place, but there's a victor and a victory that will bring me into a good place. Joy is the thing inside our heart that says it's not going well, but gee, I know it's going to go well. There is not happiness in my heart, particularly where the church of the Gold Coast is right now. But I tell you this, there is an immense joy in my heart that God has something spectacular for his people. So the joy remains in my heart in all situations. I can fight a trial, I can fight a massive battle and be not necessarily happy because there's a little bit uh, strange when someone is in a massive mess and they're bouncing around, you think, This ain't going to last long. This guy is holding a face. See, we thought for a long while that as Christians, we're supposed to have joy in our hearts, that we're supposed to smile and be happy and everything's supposed to be good. How are you? I'm really good. Blessed be to God. I'm really good. Yet all throughout the scriptures, we see the authors say, I'm in a peril. I'm in a mess. But there's joy in my heart. Because I know there's a way out. I know there's a victory. I know that I'm coming into something more. That's joy. Often when people are not operating in joy, they can't see past the cloud that's in front of them. They can't see past the mess. They can't see the painting from the stroke that they're seeing that's wrong. They can't see the beauty in what God is doing or is going to do. Someone asked me the other day, how's, how, how are things? How's the church? How's, and I said, hey, I, I, can, I get an option to choose. I can either choose the really awesome stuff that's going on or I can choose the really awful stuff that's going on. Which would you like me to give you? Because there is really good stuff and there is really bad stuff. But my joy and my hope is in that God is bringing us in to something more. My heart stays in a place. This is why Luke 10 Sorry, Luke 2.10 says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Jesus was the source of great joy because he was the promise to bring them out of the mess. See, joy is a future forward-looking thing. And I tell you, when joy leaves your heart, it's a dark place. 
where there is depression in your heart or depression in somebody's heart, there's an absence of joy. Why? Because there's an absence out. There's an absence out of taking my pyjamas off and making my bed. There's nothing good past my front door. There's nothing good out there. It's an absence of joy. Jesus says, I have a promise. I have a plan. I have a purpose. Hebrews 6, 19 to 20. I'm doing a bit of both here. I'm jumping around, but I'm still going to stay in James, I promise. But there's some foundational truths that we have to get. Coco read this out at prayer on Thursday night from Hebrews 6, 19, verse 20, bouncing to the the Passion Translation because it paints a beautiful picture. But it says, We have this certain hope like a strong, unbreakable anchor holding our souls to God himself. Our anchor of hope is fastened to the mercy seat which sits in the heavenly realm beyond the sacred threshold and where Jesus, our forerunner, has gone in before us. He is now and forever a royal priest like Melchizedek. Our promise is held in Jesus. Our hope is held in Jesus. Our joy comes from the fact that I'm a priest. I'm a son of the Most High. My world can be falling apart and I can be emotional and I can be sad and I can be struggling, but there's a joy, there's a light in my heart that says, but something bigger is coming. Something more is coming. There's something that's that's being brought in. My hope is fastened in Christ. He is the anchor to the mercy seat which is hidden in the heavenly realms. You have to understand that when James is writing, count it all joy, he's saying, it's it's awful now. It's awful now, but count it joy, my brothers. There's something to come. Count it joy, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Count it joy, there's a way out of the mess. Count it joy, we have a path through the wilderness. And his name is Jesus. That's who I'm coming to preach to you about. That's what James is saying to the church in Jerusalem who wouldn't quite known Jesus yet. They wouldn't have quite begun to understand the fullness and the promise. He's saying, count it joy. They would have started to realize joy is a promise to come, pulling me out of my mess. Count it joy when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's been quite a big thing in the Christian media of of late. Um, Evangelists are repenting for the fact that they have preached a certain message to get people into the kingdom by saying your life will will, will not have any problem once you come into the kingdom. Once you come in, there will be all roses and fairy tales. It will be amazing. Who's lived a life without uh, without any trouble since you've become a Christian? Anyone? Any? Gone once, twice, thrice? Everyone's still got problems. It's hard to preach that. That's what had to be placed because when we come into the kingdom, we still have struggles. We still have things that are going to test us. We still have things that are going to tempt us, still have things that are going to try and remove us out of the kingdom. But what James is saying to them is counter or joy because when there's things, when you are operating in a test, when you're operating in the trials of life, there's something beautiful that takes place. There's something beautiful that starts to happen. For you know that by the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. That when we operate in a time of testing, it's bringing us into more of Him, more of God. There's this beautiful picture that explains this, that that 
really encouraged me in the way of a, of a test. Around 406, 404 BC, there was a, a, a big war called the Peloponnesian War, and it, it sent a lot of people broke and hungry, sent a lot of people um, into poverty. And what they would do then is that coins were hard to come by, silver and gold coins, which was the thing they used to trade, were hard to come by. So what they would do is that they would take a coin and they would melt the coin down and, and make it really thin and spread it out into more coins and then cover those coins, sorry, make coins out of copper, a cheaper metal, and then they would use the gold from the real coins to just cover and coat the coins so it looked real. So what started to happen was there was this fake lot of coins coming in that were plated with gold or silver, but they were really copper. So you know how you go and you buy, you see, you see that antiques roadshow? Jess's grandparents love it. I love sitting there and watching it with them because they just get so excited. But there's a thing that always say, is it, is it plated or is it real gold? That's where this came from because they would plate it to make it look fancy and expensive, but really on the inside it was cheap. But what the silver and gold smiths used to do to make sure that it wasn't fake, to make sure that it was real, is that they would take the coin and they would heat the coin up. And the copper, which was a softer metal, would come to the top, would rise to the top, and they could scoop the garbage off the top until they saw the raw metal that was meant to be there, the gold or the silver. And what they would do is they would keep scraping the top, the, the garbage off the top, until they could see their image, the reflection of themselves in the coin. So the coin would be heated and heated, remove the garbage, remove the garbage, remove the garbage, until I can see the maker's image in the coin. That's what God is doing in a time where people are pushed, where people are strained, where people he's heating the people up so that he can remove the garbage off the top. He's heating the people up so he can remove the garbage off the top. Why? Because he's looking for his image inside of you. He's looking for his image to be reflected into all the world. That's why we are image bearers. That's why we are created with the images of God, because we're meant to represent him here. But sometimes there's some crap that gets in the way. There's some garbage that gets in the way. And God has to, has to heed us to remove it, heed us to remove the garbage. So when I look around and I see in large parts of the church Things coming to the surface, things bubbling up. And I go, what is happening? Leaders falling to sin, leaders falling to all kinds of things. Churches, churches in disarray. I go, what is going on? God is cleaning the crap off the top to see his image again in a people. But we get to choose what that looks like. We get to choose whether we're a part of that or not. That's why we've been preaching for, for the last six months, repent. Come, bring yourself before God. Give yourself back to righteousness. Give yourself back to the way he has asked us to operate. Why? Because we want to carry his image in the world properly. We want to carry who he is. And he's cleansing the church. He's cleansing the bride. He's cleansing the people to say, I cannot have spot or wrinkle in when I move through a people. God wants the Spirit to move. He's longing to see a people on fire. He's longing to see a people awakened and a city sold out for him. But he cannot do that if things keep getting in the way. He cannot do that if things come in to try and distort the message, distort who he is and paint a different picture other than the picture he's asked us to paint. He's heating up the church to cleanse it. 
I mean, you can use, I, I could stand here for, for ages and put out thing after thing, diamonds, butterflies, all these things that need tension, that need heat, that need pressure in order to come in to what it's being asked to because the pressure forces the nonsense out. The pressure forces the garbage out. James is saying, count it all joy because of, if you're in a time of trial, if you're in a time of testing, your faith is going to be increased into steadfastness. Your faith is going to be given to more and more. This is an exciting, encouraging time because steadfastness is the quality of being resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. Steadfastness is the quality of being resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. In this day and age, we need a people of faith who can be absolutely, resolutely and dutifully firm and unwavering on who Jesus is. I don't know if I want to get into it, but there was a big announcement from a big group of Christians in the world that is highlighting that there is more and more, more and more things that are creeping into the church, that are creeping in to remove the people from looking at Jesus, to remove and lead a people back to the ways of the world. You let a little bit of the world come in and a lot will start coming in, thing after thing after thing, and all of a sudden we get to the place where we go, Jesus, we don't know who we are anymore. We don't even know what your scriptures say anymore because we stopped looking at them. Because we stop being steadfast in our face. We stop being resolutely and dutifully firm and unwavering as to who you are and who your kingdom is. Sometimes we have to stand in a place where God gives us a message that we find challenging. Where God gives us something that we go, man, that's so hard, but I need to clean my life. I need to clean myself before him because I want to operate in the place he's asking me to operate. Does that make sense? Is anyone else a little bit like nervous with that? I am. It's okay. My prayer, one of my prayers, God, help me be firm and unwavering. Help me be firm and un- unwavering. It's easy for me to be firm and unwavering from the barrel. It's difficult for me to be firm and unwavering. Like I said last week around a barbecue, around friends who tell me I'm a goose because I believe in Christ or you know whatever it is, they're the times where I go, God, help me be steadfast in my faith. Help me be steadfast in my faith. James 1, verse 5. Did I skip verse 4? 1, 3, verse 4. Is it up there? Yeah, beautiful. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and completely lacking in nothing. That the quality of being resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering will allow you to be perfect and complete, lacking for nothing. That when we step into the fullness of God, we step into the plan and pattern that he has for us, we lack in nothing. Because he knows everything we need. He knows everything that we, we uh, desire to see his kingdom come, to see his will be done. When I step outside of that and I start operating in things, the reason lack comes in is God goes, God goes, that was never written for you because you didn't need those things to go where you're going. 
You see this all the time in people with ministry where they start with a beautiful heart and vision. They start where God's leading them into, what God's called them into, and then it gets a bit bigger and they kind of change direction and then it gets really hard. Why? Because I didn't give you the tools to do that job. I gave you the tools to do the first job I asked you to do. So all of a sudden we get to a place where we grow, 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 and then we go, you know what? I want to go into this region. Well, if God didn't call you into that region, he didn't give you the tools to go there, it's going to be real hard work. But everywhere else that I've gone, everyone else that I've known who said, God's calling me to a place. God's calling me, he's calling me, he's calling me. And then they go in and door after door after door opens. They meet the most unusual people. Some stories I've heard where they've met the prime minister or the president of that nation just in a weird, awkward, because God's given you the tools and you're standing in his plan and his purpose and you're being steadfast with what he's asked you to do. You haven't wavered in the way he's asked you to go. James 1, 5 to 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. I want to tell you that I think across our day and in our lives, all of us lack wisdom. All of us get to a place where we think we know what we're doing, but the reality is, God, I need your wisdom. This is not to say I'm a superstar, but I pray that prayer regularly because I find myself in positions that I don't feel equipped for and I don't think I should be sitting in this seat and I start saying, God, I need your wisdom. I need you to speak now more than ever because I don't have the tools to, to do this. God will speak through you when your heart is soft and ready to receive what he has. Case in point, I was in a conversation a few weeks ago. I've been dealing with um, some legal stuff with a friend and I know, I know this much of the legal stuff, a smidge. I know enough of the language to get me through a conversation and they were asking me questions and asking me to come and be in on a conversation with a solicitor. And I said, hey, look, I, I, I will do it for you. I'll help you in this, in this time. And, and I hung the phone up. They said, I'll call you back in 20 minutes and I'll have the solicitor on, on the line in the three-way call. I hung the phone up and instantly I just thought, God, I need wisdom. Lord, I need you. I can't do this. I don't know enough to get me through a conversation, let alone uh, enough to make this person feel good in a conversation. I need your help. And boom, as soon as I get on the phone call, God starts speaking to the point that the, the solicitor asked me if I was a solicitor. I said, no, please, good sir, no. I've studied a little bit. I know a little bit. But God spoke in a situation where I couldn't where I had nothing left. I had no ability. I had no power. I had nothing. And I said, God, I need you to speak. The more we get to that place, the easier our life is. The, more we, the moment we start thinking, I've got this, the wheels fall off. The moment we start thinking, it's like when you step up to play golf and you think you're a superstar, you'll get the worst score ever. You get this confidence that doesn't exist. That's how we have to be with God. Lord, I need your wisdom to speak. 
as, as little as sometimes, you know, going into a conversation with my wife, Lord, I need your wisdom to speak. Let me lay down myself to hear your voice because your voice is going to be the best thing in this place. But the thing is, is that we have to ask in faith. We have to ask in faith. Psalm 37.30 says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The importance of wisdom is that it comes from our righteousness. It comes from a place when we are, when we are righteous before God, when we, are, when we are acting in His will, we utter wisdom, and it comes from that place to bring justice. Whose justice? His justice. That we operate in a place of His justice through who He is. But let us ask in faith. Let Him ask in faith. We are to ask for wisdom. I said last week that faith is the assurance and conviction that God will give it to us. We are to ask with the assurance and conviction that God will give it to us. That when we are in a place and we're going, oh, I hope he gives us faith. I'll wait till I get it before I step in. God's saying, no, ask that you know that I will give it to you. Ask even though that meeting's been booked. There was no backing out for me. There was no way I could have just not taken that call. I was heading into that conversation with or without the wisdom of God. But I get to come from a place where I said, Lord, you told me that I will get it if I ask you for it. You promised me that I could step in if I asked you for it, if it's for the furthering of your kingdom. So, Lord, I'm asking in the authority you've given me that you will give me wisdom in this moment. And in that moment, this wisdom. When we start operating with double mind, when we start operating, will it, maybe, won't it? I don't know if God's going to give it to me this time. I, I think he might, but I don't know. We start operating in a place where we are out of touch. We are out of depth. We're double-minded. That's why I say to people all the time, if you, are, if you have your foot in two houses, you need to go and work out what God's saying to you. Because if one place is saying something and the other place is saying something different, you get caught in this to and froing, and you actually become unhelpful to yourself and to those around you. You need to be able to be steadfast in who God's, what God's saying to you and what he's speaking to you. But in that, we get to ask him, Lord, where have you sent me? Lord, where am I to be? Lord, what does this look like? And he gives us those answers. He gives it to us in that. With, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We have to have in our character an understanding and a fullness that God is going to operate in us and through us. Does that make sense? Yeah. If we don't have that understanding, if we don't believe that God is going to operate in us and through us, guess what? He probably won't. In actual fact, this says that he won't. We will be unstable. Our mind will be clouded. Our judgment will be clouded. Things will be clouded because we don't believe that he is who he says he is. But when we step into that place and go, God, you are who you said you are and I'm standing on that and I'm going to operate from that place. Is everyone okay? Does that make sense? Okay. James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is an extraordinarily challenging verse when you read it for what it's saying. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is not speaking about salvation. This is not speaking about salvation. This is speaking about an honor that is given to those who come into glory with him, who have operated how he's asked you to operate. See, access into heaven is that I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth. That brings me into the place with God. But operating in him and from him is operating by love toward him, doing the things that he's asked us to do. Let's just see what Jesus says in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He then goes on a bit later in John 14, 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That when we operate to God in a way that he's asked us to, things start to happen that we don't see happening normally. The manifestation of God starts to happen. Things start to roll out. We always look at like, I know all of us, or for myself rather, has looked at somebody and gone, man, how does this guy see so much? How does he hear so much from God? Why does he get all these incredible manifestations where he sees? Because he's operating in the Father's will. He's operating from a place where he says, Lord, I love you. I will keep your commandments. And Jesus says, I love you, my son, and I will manifest myself to you. You ever notice when you start bringing yourself before God regularly, when you start bringing yourself to a place where you're going, you know what, God, I'm just going to do what you asked me to do. All of a sudden, things start happening. Whatever the, however God speaks to you starts happening more and more and more. If it's dreams, it's dreams. If it's visions, it's visions. If it's, you're hearing things throughout your day, it starts, it's like it opens your ears up. Because all of a sudden you start acting out of a love for him that he starts going, I'll manifest myself to you. I will bring you the words and the things that I have for you. But so you have to go back to the fact that James is saying, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He will receive, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Being steadfast unwavering in who God says brings us to a place where he says well done my good and faithful servant here is a crown of life I don't want to go on to to propose what that may look like in heaven but what we have to begin to understand is that it's not just this thing well I'm in and I'm going to get to heaven so being there is better than anything we have to break that down especially in the western culture that's not the way the Jews saw it 
They saw that as salvation. I've come in. I'm in the kingdom because Jesus says the kingdom has come. But now, now there's things to do. Why? So that I get more glory and honor in heaven and I get to walk around with a bigger chest? No, because he's my father and I want to honor him in all that I do. Now, the kick of that, yes, is that you will be given a crown. You will be given things that God's saying, well done, boy. You did what I asked you to do. But there's this thing, not because I want to get a nice, big, shiny crown in heaven, but because because, Lord, you were so good and so honorable that I just want to do whatever you want me to do. That well done, my good and faithful servant, here is your crown, should be a thing where we go, Lord, I'm so grateful that you allowed me to operate for you. I'm so grateful. There comes a time where we have to begin to understand because he is worthy, I'll operate in this. Because he is good and glorious, I'll operate in this. Yes, I might get a crown. I might get a a clap into heaven. But the reality is is that when I'm there, it won't matter because Lord, I just want to see you. But he says, my boy, you did so well. You did so well. Here it is. Here's your inheritance. We talk often about our inheritance. What's our inheritance? Our inheritance is given from God unto how we operate in the things He's asked us to do, in how we love Him well, in how we love Him well. That's why for me, my, my, my prayer is, God, I just want to be doing what you've asked me to do. Help me to operate where you want me to operate. Why? Because I want to please you and honor you. I don't have to, but I want to. I don't need to do this in order for you to love me. You already love me with all of your heart, unconditional agape love. However, I want to pour out on you like you've poured out on me. I've said it many times from here, but that's how I love my wife. Sorry, pause. That's how I'm supposed to love my wife. I don't always get it right, but I'm supposed to love my wife, Jess, regardless of how I'm feeling that day, regardless of what you've done for me, I'll pour out my love to you. And you know what her job is? Ben, regardless of how much of a goose you've been, regardless of what you've done today, I will pour out my love unto you. That's agape love. So we expect Jesus to love us unconditionally, but at times we struggle to reverse it and love him unconditionally. To love him when we go, God, I don't understand it right now. There's some things over the last six months where I've said, God, I don't understand this right now. I need your help because this makes no sense. This is not how I would operate. But you've said do it and I love you, so I'll do it. It makes no sense. And then you look back and you go, of course, that should have made sense. That was the perfect plan, but we couldn't see it. See, God is asking us to love him resolutely, dutifully, firm and unwavering. That steadfastness, that your faith in who he is, your faith in who he's going to bring you through, how he's going to bring you through is unwavering, is absolutely resolute and dutifully firm. That's hope. That's joy. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Lord, at times we struggle with that. Jesus, at times I struggle with that. But Lord, I love you and I want to show you that I love you. Moving on, James 1. I need to finish, don't I? Jeepers, we're not going to get all that through. I'm going to finish this last one. James 1, 13, verse 16. Wow, is it 10 past 11? I'm so sorry. I did not realize the time. Oh, no, it's 10 to 11. 
We'll go by that clock. We'll go by that, that clock. I get 10 more minutes. James 1 verse 13. <laughs> Eat of smoking. It's 10 past. I'll finish now. I apologize. Let me finish with this then. Let me finish with the temptation of our heart. Okay, let me finish with the temptation of our heart. James 1, 13 to 16 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted, each person rather, is tempted when he is lured and, lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Let me start with this. This verse is challenging. Why? Because it says that Jesus, that God, sorry, God cannot <coughs> be tempted. Yet when we read the scriptures, we see that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, right? So you have to understand there firstly that God is both fully man and fully God. There was a when he came to earth, he operated fully out of his out of his manhood, out of his humanity, in order to reveal the plans and purposes for you and I as to how where to act as Christians with inside this world. If he was still operating out of his Godhead, if he's still operating as God, he wouldn't have been able to say to us, You can go and do more than what I've done, right? Because it would be unattainable for us because we aren't God. So he was operating out of his humanity. So when it says here that God cannot be, cannot be tempted, when Satan tempted Jesus, he was tempting what? His humanity. He was tempting who he is as, or sorry, who he was at the time as a human. So when it comes to us, there is a fullness in an opportunity that we can be tempted. But at times, God, we will say, oh, God put that temptation before me. No, he didn't. Because James is very explicit that he didn't. But then we can go, well, does God challenge us? Yes, but a challenge and a temptation are very different. A challenge leads you back into God. A temptation leads you away from God. A challenge leads you back into God. A temptation leads you away from God. So God is not tempting you. He's not tempting you, but he will challenge you. There is a challenge that comes through the temptation. But the interesting thing here as well is that I was like, okay, well, then it's Satan that tempts us. But James goes on to say he's lured and enticed by his own desire. That's why, that's why David, King David, says to God, Lord, search my heart and find the hidden things inside me that, are not, that I don't know that are there and remove them. Because we come to a place where we get our own self in strife. We spent all our money. That's why we're broke. We went onto that side that we shouldn't have gone onto. And we knew that there was a few clicks before that that we should have pulled up before we did. We got angry at our friend in our own frustration because we weren't getting what we wanted. See, there's times where we, yes, the enemy does uh, try to remove you and tempt you. But there are times often when it's, it's just us. It's our own mess. It's our own thing. And we have to say to God, God, please come and remove it. But it also says is that when the temptation is conceived, it gives birth to sin. If I'm on a diet, on a strict diet, and I lay on my couch, and I'm like, man, I'm going to go eat those Tim Tams. I'm going to eat those Tim Tams. 
It only becomes a problem when I walk over and I eat the Tim Tams and they go into my stomach. It becomes a problem when we actually start being acting on the enticement and the thing. A friend of mine, I was telling this story just on the weekend, a friend of mine was on a plane and he was flying back and he was landed and they were on the tarmac. And the whole flight, he was an older gentleman, and the whole flight there was this very good-looking young stewardess on the flight that was, was only serving him, bringing him his drinks and his food, this one young, good-looking stewardess. And he told this story that he said there was, there was things starting to stir. He could feel very spiritual man, very strong man of God. He said, I could start to feel things happening in the spirit. And he said, I, st- I could start to feel that my mind was wandering to a place I didn't want it to go. And I was going to start acting on thoughts and conceive a temptation. He said the moment, he was in business class, he said the moment the seatbelt light turned off, he unclipped his belt, he grabbed his bag and he ran. He said, I ran, old boy, hilarious. He said, I ran down the tarmac. I could just picture him with his little side satchel, just like streaming. And he said, I didn't want to be in any place where I could conceive a temptation and make it sin in my life. I was so humbled by that. I thought, man, even you, a strong warrior in the faith, he said, I would not put myself in that position. See, things will try to tempt us situations will try to tempt us but it comes down to us as to whether or not we want to let them be conceived into something that's sin in our life does that make sense we have the choice we have the opportunity and the ability to operate where god wants us to operate search me O lord ask god ask god regularly you can stand You can stand. The final verse talks about first fruits. Go home and read it. James 1, 17 verse 18 talks about the fact that we are the first fruits of God. That we become, we become his cherished ones. We become what it is that he labored in the field for that we become and we are his image bearers in the world. Has this been helpful? Can you take something away from this? Or are you just nodding because I'm asking questions and the smell of coffee is in the background? Go and read this book, but ask God to show you a lens of James helping the people. We are the dispersed he was writing to. The church in the contemporary age is the dispersed he was writing to. So, Lord, we just come before you now. Jesus, we pray that you help us in our steadfast faith toward you. God, I pray that as we go back into our weeks, as we go back into our spheres of influence, the place that we've come from, Lord, that we would go with a heart hungry for you, with a heart hungry to see your kingdom come, to see your will be done. Lord, search our heart. And show us the things that aren't of you. Show us the things that need to be fixed. Show us the things that need to be removed that even we can't see. And Lord, I pray that as we start to be tempted, as things start to pop up in our lives, now that we've highlighted this, God, that we have the strength and the wisdom and the courage to walk away. We have the strength, the wisdom and the courage, Lord, to like my friend, get off the plane and run. To run back into your arms, Jesus. 
Help those things that have been conceived be broken now in Jesus' name. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We declare your kingship in this city and in this nation and in the nations, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and we honor you. And in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.